Gentlemen, uh, if you can remember from two weeks ago, we are in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a good book. There are lots of great truths in Deuteronomy. And uh, the framework for walking with God is in Deuteronomy. It's wonderful. Uh, turn your Bibles then to Deuteronomy 16 toward the end of that chapter. We'll begin with verse 18 and go all the way through uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 20. Now, before we look at this, you remember we are now in the section of sanctions. I'm sorry, of stipulations. And Moses is describing for the people of God, having explained them who God is and what he's already done for them in delivering them out of Egypt, taking them into the promised land. He's now teaching them this is the way you are to walk with him, to be faithful in your covenant arrangement with him. He's the suzerain king. You are the vassal kings. This is the treaty you have with you and him, the covenant treaty. This is how you are to maintain fellowship and intimacy with him. And this is how he will maintain you in the land. And we had the general stipulations going through the Ten Commandments. Now we have the specific stipulations. This is what those Ten Commandments mean. Now when we come to this section, some scholars suggest that this is sort of the specificity of the fifth commandment to honor your mother and your father, to honor your parents. Because as you know, in the fifth commandment, what we really have is a commandment to abide by God-given authority. Whatever authorities God has placed in life, we are to submit to them, whether they are in the state or in the home or in the school or the business or the church. And so this is, many scholars think, an exposition of some sort of the fifth commandment. This is part of what it means. And what Moses is going to show Israel here is the way in which God is going to structure their political life. He structures, of course, their church life as well because church and state in Israel were coterminous. That is, they were a theocracy. Theos, God, was the... Uh, was the autocrat. God was the ruler of both church and state, and church and state were united. They were, it was one entity. However, you're going to find in this theocracy that there are many political uh, organizational principles that we Americans will recognize because we've used them in the constitution of our own government, and they make for good government, generally speaking. We'll see those in here, but we'll also see the necessity for leadership. And leadership is always an urgent issue. And one reason that we men would study the Bible is so that we can be more effective leaders in the community, in the workplace, in the home, and in our churches. And what we're going to see here are some wonderful encouragements to lead in the community. One of you uh, was asking me just the other day, what do we do? How can we make uh, an impact on our own city and community, especially with regard to this school issue. Well, you know, we, we just start with the basics, don't we? First of all, get yourself informed. And Christians have always believed in informing the populace of what's going on politically. I don't really know how you can be a fully engaged Christian man and not read the newspaper or its equivalent, digital equivalent uh, on a regular basis and staying up not just with what's going on in Washington and New York and Atlanta, uh, but in Memphis 
and in the state of Tennessee, because you are a citizen of a city or a county, you are a citizen of a state, and you are a citizen of a nation. And as a citizen, you have privileges, but you also have obligations. And Christians really believe in assuming these obligations and exercising our responsibilities. So we must be informed, and I find it difficult to get informed. I mean, there are so many nuances, so many things that you have to go beyond the newspaper article and try to research what in the world is going on here. And there are complexities in government that most lay people like myself just don't understand. And so when it comes to trying to decide how to act on a certain uh, referendum or a certain election, sometimes it takes some work. But when we have, when we have political campaigns, it's actually our obligation to read about the candidates so that we not only can fulfill our duty and vote, uh, it's one thing to go vote, but it's another thing to know what you're doing when you vote, to vote intelligently. And Christians are obligated to vote intelligently. And uh, we, we see the uh, diminishment of civics classes in our high schools now where civic government is not really taught very much from what I understand. And it's because we're losing the mentality of the Christian's obligation in the state to exercise his leadership. And you exercise it through informed voting. And being an informed person, you'll often communicate with your uh, public representatives, whether they are the mayor or the city council or school board or a, a, a congressman or a senator or, if you have the opportunity, even the president of the United States. We express our opinions. And democracies or Republican forms of government that are built on a Christian mentality depend upon a moral people, and they depend upon an informed moral people, and a moral people will be informed because a moral people want to exercise their privileges and their responsibilities in the civic world. So the first thing is get yourself informed and be able to vote intelligently on the referendum that's coming up. And honestly, I think you could have Christians voting on either side of that. I'm sure in this room we'll have people voting on either side of it. And, you know, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if, if there were a clear Christian option every time there were a referendum or an election. But sometimes it's very difficult to know exactly what the right thing is. But the right thing for you and me is to use Christian discernment, to use wisdom, and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us in casting whatever vote we have or writing whatever letter we're going to write or having whatever conversation we go to or whatever town hall meeting we might go to. Some of these debates that are on TV or that are offered it on college or university campuses. We ought to be attending those and asking questions, being informed and influencing people. Let me tell you, politicians are influenced by the number of letters they get and what those letters say. They're influenced by the conversations you have. And some of you uh, have regular contact with people who are in government. You ought to be encouraging them, thanking them for their service, and also at the appropriate moment and the appropriate time, uh, communicating opinions. Beyond being informed and exercising our influence, uh, then we can get involved in certain ways. And usually what you want to do is get involved with a group that's going in the right direction. For most of us, uh, you know, we're just one person, you know, among 1.4 million people in the MSA in, in, market, in the Memphis area. And so we feel like, well, just, I'm just one person out of a million point four. Uh, but if you get involved with a group that's doing something meaningful, you can have a great effect. For example, some of you are involved in helping in the 
public schools. So we have all this debate going on at the high level about the organization of the schools. Well, what about the schools themselves? And some of you uh, at Second and other churches are involved over here at Burr-Claire Elementary and have made a tremendous difference over there. And to me, that's far more important than the politics and the organization of our system. I'm not diminishing the importance of the system, but using our hands-on influence when you have opportunity to. Some of you from other churches have other ways in which you can get involved in helping to educate the children of our community. For after all, isn't that our civic duty? Don't we want 150,000 children to know something about, about how to be a responsible citizen in all of its implications? So if you want to have, it's, it's like a cycle. If you want to have impact politically, the ones you're going to deal with the most are the younger ones. And so get involved as you have opportunity to get involved. And then lastly, I would say sometimes your influence is simply the hallway conversation. And I suspect that's probably the greatest influence you have is the people who already know you, with whom you already have credibility, to whom your opinion is already important. And look at this room uh, with, with men sitting here studying God's Word. Now we're going to go out in just a few moments, and all of us, we're going to go to different stations in this city. We, we will have, we'll have angels. We'll have messengers all over this city in different places. Just use your influence where you are. The guy in the office next door to you, the customer that you call on this afternoon, you take him to lunch, and he asks you your opinion on this, and you give a thoughtful Christian biblical opinion, and you engage all of the rancor and all of the evil arguments that are sometimes made. I'm much more concerned about the reason for what people want to do than I am what they want to do. And I think we all ought to be concerned about that. It's the reason that when presidents of our country take action like war, it's their duty to give us a clear rationale for why they're doing it. The Augustinian uh, doctrine on war, on just warfare, demands that certain doctrines and, and principles be followed. And our president needs to show the world how we engage combat internationally. We do it in a principled way. And so the pre president in his office must be a teacher on this. Well, the same for us. We have our responsibilities, and it's our duty to give principled rationale for what we do and why we do it. Whether it's in your business or in your profession, you need to have your doctrines. You need to have thought those through. And when you take certain actions and people ask you why you're doing what you do, you give a principled rationale for what you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, why is that so important? Because that rationale is what regulates our life together. That's your leadership. You're influencing the next generation as to how to be an accountant, how to be a, a financial officer, how to be a CEO, how to be a physician, how to be a lawyer. You are passing down a legacy, a corpus of Christian reason as to how we live life together. And you want people making decisions behind you that are in accord with a sound biblical reason. And so you provide rationale with the actions that you take. This is how you have influence, is you think through carefully what you're doing so that you can describe it when you do it. And then others, when they have similar decisions, won't make the same decision you did, but they'll perhaps use the same rationale that got you to the conclusion you went to. Now, that's the reason leadership is so important. And without these leaders, we're not going to have 
order and peace in our society. And all one needs to do is just check the international newspapers. Just look at the nation of Egypt. Why is it in a mess? Because of unprincipled leadership. Mubarak had a chance for 30 years to share power, to help the poor, to elevate his own people, to avoid corruption in his own administration and nepotism. He had an opportunity to do all that. He had an opportunity to take Egypt into this century and to leave their tyrannical past behind them. He had an opportunity to do that, and he failed. He was corrupt. He was selfish. He used sheer power. He played people against people. Instead of giving principled arguments for how a people ought to be led together. And now, when they overthrow him, what are they left with? Well, who knows? There's been no development of a, of a core of leaders who can rise up, appoint informally a leader among them, and begin to get momentum falling in democratic directions. So this is why leadership is so important in your business, in your profession, in our city, and in, in the world. Without it, there is chaos or tyranny. You get one or the other. You either get someone who comes in with enormous power to bring order and peace because when chaos is there, everybody wants peace. So they'll even bring in Hitler to get peace. Once they have Hitler, they don't want him anymore because he's tyrannical. So where do they go to? Chaos again. It's only through principled leadership that people have shalom in any community. That's the reason that what we're studying today is so important. Before these people come into the Holy Land, before they take possession of a property and before they seek to serve the Lord there, the Lord's going to say to them, let's talk about good government. And we're not just going to talk to the city fathers. No, let's talk to the children. Let's talk to the wives. Let's talk to everybody in this entire two million person community. Let's get them all educated about how we're going to live life together in covenant community. And there's a certain sense, you know, the Puritans talked about a covenant community here in the States, which was, I think, naive as we'll see in a moment. But still, there is sort of a communal bond. There is a kind of a covenant that we have with each other in civil society that dimly reflects the kind of covenant that we have in church society. So let's take a look at some of the teachings here in Deuteronomy and seek to apply them to the Christian engagement of politics and civic life in our own era. Let's begin with chapter 16, verse 18. And uh, you'll notice here that we're going to look at primarily two offices. We'll have three mentioned today. But there are actually four offices. If you look at uh, chapter 16, you see the heading there. It says justice. And um, then you look at the next page, uh, verse 8, legal decisions by priests and judges. And then the next paragraph is headed up by the ESV here, laws concerning Israel's kings. And then once again, priests and Levites. And then turn the page and you'll see... Uh, at the bottom of page 358, verse 15 there, new prophets like Moses. So we have mentioned the judges, the kings, the priests, and the prophets, four offices. They're mentioned in order. And what you'll see from the beginning is sort of a separation of powers. And what we're going to see is that in Israel, unlike the neighboring Near Eastern nations, God was doing something different with Israel. He was separating the powers. The king was not the sovereign ruler who could do everything in the uh, civic order. He, the kings had a restricted office. And there were four offices mentioned here. They're all important and they're all separated. So in our separation of powers, where did we get that? Well, we got it right out of the Bible. We don't trust sinful men. 
So we separate powers and balance of powers so that justice is more likely to prevail. So let's, let's take a look at it and notice this as we read through, and then we'll try to draw some principles for it from it. Verse 18 in chapter 16. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, Then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days. And you shall consult them. And they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner or cause the people to return to... I'm sorry, you may may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in accord to acquire many horses in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you you shall never return that way again and he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom and he and his children in Israel. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. Uh, you know what? Am I going too far? Yes, I am, aren't I? But that was great reading. You're welcome. You get a discount next week. Gentlemen, let's look at verses 18 through 20 in chapter 16. I just got carried away. I was enjoying that so much. Look at verses 18 through 20 and we see this. Our judges must judge with righteous judgment. Our judges must judge with righteous judgment. You shall appoint judges and officers and they shall judge with righteous judgment. Now notice that these judges, uh, I don't think they went to law school. Uh, They didn't seem to have uh, extensive training in some centralized place. They were generally simply the elders of the land. They were the senior men who had wisdom of experience and men who were recognized to be honest. And they were the ones who were to be appointed to be judges and officers. And you know what? As you get older and wiser, and even before you're old, when you're in Christ and you have His wisdom, you ought to be able to make judgments. And actually, you ought to aspire to be a good judge wherever you are. And if it helps you to learn from our professional judges, then learn from them. In fact, you might just go to court someday. And you can go down and watch Chris Craft. One time I went down to see Chris Craft. I was called to jury duty. And uh, I was being interviewed in his jury. And uh, the, uh, let's see, it was the prosecutor who asked me. He said, now, Reverend, uh, I suppose that uh, you believe in grace, don't you? I said, yes, Counselor, I do. I said, I believe in grace and, and I believe in law. Well, with that, the, the uh, lawyer for the defense, you know, was, he nixed me. I, I found out later. He, he was the one who nixed me. I asked Chris and he told me. And uh, so uh, I was dismissed from the jury. And when I got up to leave, uh, Judge Kraft said, Reverend Wilson, uh, I suggest you wipe that smile off your face. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, oh, I just wanted to be there and serve all week on that jury. Uh, but uh, So just tell the truth, and you're not likely to get appointed to anything. Uh, but uh, just watching, watching him operate and learning. Uh, you know, we have a lot of critique of government, including the, the court system. 
But if you just go and see how a judge operates and see the principles that they apply in making judgments, how everything has to be arm's length, how everything has to be according to principle, how all the evidence has to be presented in a proper way, and how everybody has to be able to witness what's going on there. All the principles that are used, you can learn from that when you make your business decisions, when you make your professional decisions, when you deal with friendships. Be aware of all those principles that are used in the highest courts where they're most careful because if they're not careful, they're going to get their pants sued off or lose their job. So they're very careful. And you can learn from that. And it's so important for us to have judges who abide by the highest standards of morality and decency and fairness in the community. When everything else is falling apart, it's oftentimes the judicial system that sustains us. Uh, those of you who know Dr. Raju Abraham in India, uh, an Indian Christian who's serving there, reaching really thousands of people for Christ. But he said, you know, if you look back at the history of India in, in the last century, when the British had rule there, what did the British do as they were leaving? They imported an American form of government. Why? Because it, it allows for justice. And so uh, Raju said, you know, not only did uh, the Americans bring us the gospel, but they brought us a government that saved our necks. Because when the radical Hindus uh, had power, it was the judicial system that protected the minorities. And so without that, there probably wouldn't be a church in India. The judicial system in every nation is very, very important. And so once again, when we're electing judges or when we have influence on the judicial system, and those of you who are in the legal profession, uh, some of you need to offer yourself as judges. We know the pay is not all that great, but the service that you render to others is great if you're given that skill uh, of being a judge. And here, this is the one he starts with. He doesn't start with the king. Notice this, please. This is how God's government differs from the Near Eastern governments. The Near Eastern governments really had one potentate that ruled everything. It was the king. Everything was under his control. Not so in Israel. You're not going to be like the pagan nations. You're going to be different. He starts with the judges, with justice, with principles of law. It ought to be the same way with ourselves. No matter what political party you belong to, no matter whether you're rich or poor, no matter what your special interests are or what packs you support, the number one thing we all ought to be seeking together is justice according to good, faithful law. Now, look what he says here. Two things about righteous judgment. Number one, it's without perversion. You shall not pervert justice. And justice can be perverted. Men can be perverted. And probably you've been in situations where you were dealt with unjustly and you've seen how people with responsibility to be just were not just. It got perverted. Well, how so? First of all, partiality. And here Moses says, you shall not show partiality. That is, you don't favor, literally, you don't favor someone's face. You don't take this face over that face. And if you're in a position of giving justice, uh, you don't favor your family over some non-family member. You don't favor your friend over someone who's not your friend. You don't favor your neighborhood over somebody else's neighborhood. No, if you're in a position of justice, if the Lord's put you in a position to make a decision, it has to be arm's length with equal justice for everybody involved in that decision. That's Christian principles, gentlemen, right out of the Old Testament, that we are supposed to be the one. Look, one day we're going to judge angels. We're destined to be the judges of the cosmos. And we're beginning now this ministry 
of making discernments and making judgments. So, for example, if you're dealing with the immigration issue, you don't just immediately go to what you perceive to be your short-term economic welfare in your particular economic class. No. You take everybody into account. You consult the will of God in the Bible. You learn from what others who are involved in these issues can teach you about the, the, the various aspects of the issue. And then you seek to make a God-centered judgment, not a knee-jerk reaction according to the partisan politics of the party to which you belong. This is what, this is what men of character have always done. They're the men who are really making a difference. It starts right here. And, and God is saying, you all are going to be different. You're going to have judges who do not judge partially. And secondly, bribes. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe does something terrible. It blinds the eyes of wise people, and it subverts the cause of the good people in your community. You know, on one hand, when I read in the commercial appeal that somebody else has been caught with a bribe, I just, I'm so saddened by it. Saddened for them and their family. Saddened for our community that had this going on. But I'm also glad for a free press. I'm glad that we put enough money into the justice system to go after people like that. I'm glad that when it happens, there's a public outcry. That's great because in some lands, there's not a public outcry. People have no sense of social justice. But gentlemen, we've got to be all over this one. When we suspect that there are bribes in our in our community or in our nation, we need to rise up and do something about it. If you don't, you lose everything. And money will pervert every system. Money has to be handled extremely carefully. And in your churches, money has to be handled carefully. Those of you who are in leadership, you have to be careful. Should you know what people in your church are donating to the church? I've chosen not ever to know those things. Why? Money perverts justice. If I'm trying to reconcile a difference in the church, am I going to favor the rich over the poor? Well, I might if I have a price tag on everybody's forehead, if I know what everybody's giving to the church. In other words, whatever your position is, whatever decisions you have to make, be sure that you seal off any information that could pervert your judgment or could even be perceived by others to pervert your judgment. Because judgment is extremely important in our community, in our nation, and it's an extremely important aspect of your leadership life. You can make good judgments. I tell you, in my life, there's some people in my life, some here in Memphis and some other places, their, their lives just stand out brilliantly in my mind. I've seen them make difficult decisions contrary to the wishes of their own friends because of moral principles and mainly the idea of justice. I just hold those people in the highest regard. I want to be like them and just learn from people like that because this is where God starts in building community, in building your family. Are you going to give favor in your inheritance to your favorite child? Where does that come from? It's just partiality. Is that justice? How are you making decisions? Can people see the justice of Christ? Because actually you know the ultimate fulfiller of this is Christ himself. He's the judge. Look at him. How he makes decisions. How he confronts his own friends. How he favors uh, no man except he shows compassion for all. And how he cares for the poor and the marginalized in particular. 
So no partiality, no bribes. And look at verse 20, without exception. Justice and only justice you shall follow. In other words, no exceptions, no excuses, no qualifications. Always justice in everything that we do. That's straight from the throne of God. And as we participate in society with all of its natural corruption, with all of its fallenness, none of us can say, well, this is just so bad, I don't want anything to do with politics. Politics is dirty. I just, don't, I just want to stay 100,000 miles away from it. Folks, you can't stay 100,000 miles away from it. You're paying taxes. Someone's picking up your garbage or not picking up your garbage. Someone's paving your streets or not paving your streets. Someone's educating the poor or not educating the poor. And you live here and you are responsible for justice. So we all must engage. The last person to withdraw should be the person who's committed to Christ. Because the person who's committed to Christ is committed to God's word. And God's word is based on building a community where God's people, all of them, here before Moses, the entire two million people, they're hearing these rules. This is what I want. Justice for everybody. And you're all responsible for it in all of your localities and in the nation itself. So he starts with our judges who must judge with righteous judgment. Secondly, let's look at verses 16, 21 through 17, 7. And here I've entitled this, Our Churches Must Discipline with Care. And you say, now where do you get the church in here? This seems to be talking about the state. Well, what you have to remember is Israel is a theocracy. And if you look at these principles uh, that are printed there before you, in Israel you have a theocracy, which means that God is king. And notice that God is king of one nation. He's the king of Israel. That's the reason that the kings in Israel don't have ultimate royal power. It's because God does. So a king is a servant. He's not the potentate. God's the potentate. That's the nature of a theocracy. But if you look on the right-hand side, by comparison, when we live in diaspora, or that's, that's a word for dispersion, so that now God's people are in all the nations of the world, God is ruler of all the nations, but not one in particular. God is no longer the king of Israel. That theocratic state doesn't exist anymore. And it's not going to exist until Christ returns and his church will be once again a theocratic state, will be a political entity as well as a religious entity. But for now, we have two entities. The church, which is God's people, his nation, if you will. But we don't have a land and we don't have a civic government. We're in dispersion and we're under the civic governments of secular states. Notice, secondly, that God gives positive laws to theocracies. In other words, when there's a theocracy, God, continual revelation is taking place because God is king and he is giving positive laws, that is, laws for the moment, for every situation, because he's the king and he's continuing to deliver edicts. But now the canon is closed Continuous revelation is not in place for us because we're in diaspora and God gives general rules that are in his word for how we're to govern one another. So we look into the scriptures and get the general equity that's in the Old Testament. You notice that as we studied about judges, we're not doing it exactly the way that it was done in the theocracy, but we take the general equity of judgeship, the general equity of judgment and justice in a community, and we seek to apply it generally in our community. Thirdly, in a theocracy, God rewards and punishes temporally. So if you 
violate the standards of the king, you could be put to death right there by the king in a theocracy. So you have immediate cause and effect, punishment and reward. But in a diaspora, in a secular state, God rewards and punishes eternally. So if you rebel against the king, you'll face your judgment at the end one day, but maybe you won't be put to death right here for not worshiping him. Fourthly, God purges unbelievers from the nation. So in a theocracy, you want purity of belief in the nation. So those who don't believe and renounce their faith, they would be put outside the nation. But in diaspora, God purges unbelievers from the church. He's given the church the rule to govern in areas that have to do with the spiritual life. So generally speaking, the first four commandments are to be disciplined by the church, and the latter six commandments are generally disciplined not only by the church but also by the state. In other words, the laws that have to do with worship and our relationship with God generally are to be disciplined by the church, and the laws that have to do with horizontal relationships among men, those are generally done in the state as well as the church. And then fifthly, notice that only God's people govern in a theocracy. You must be a believer to govern in a theocracy. And, of course, this is what I said a moment ago. There was naivete in some ways, although uh, one time one of my... uh, I'm talking about the Puritans, of course. One time one of my theology professors was asked this question. Uh, It was Dr. Roger Nicole, and someone came to Dr. Nicole and said, Dr. Nicole, uh, why was it that the Puritan experiment failed? And Dr. Nicole said, failed? <laughs> you know, we often think that you know, the new theocracy didn't work. Well, it, it worked in a lot of ways. It didn't work as a theocracy, but it gave us an incredible foundation uh, for the way in which we live life and our government that was formed in the next century. But notice here that in a diaspora, God's people participate in the government. Now, you'll notice in some of the colonies that... Uh, initially, in the Massachusetts colony, you had to be a believer in Christ in order to serve as a civil magistrate. Well, that would be just outrageous thinking for us today. But they were applying some principles of theocracy in a diaspora because they thought of themselves as a theocracy. Many of them did, wrongly. Because no matter, you can pick an island out in the Pacific somewhere, buy the island, and only let Christians get on there. Now, how long is that going to last? <laughs> you can't create a theocracy uh, without God claiming one nation and one land as his own, which he did for Israel, but he doesn't do for us. He has for us when Jesus comes back and brings the new Israel. Now, with that in mind then, what you have is the church must step up and provide the discipline in areas where the state no longer is responsible for it. We're responsible for the faith of the people and the moral lives of the people. And the church, I think, if if I could state the the bigger problem, whether it's church or state, I really think it's church. I think the state disciplines itself better than the church is disciplining itself. So I really believe it begins with a discipline of our own worship. He says, you shall not plant any tree as an asherah, not set up a pillar, uh, not a sacrifice, an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, for that is an abomination. That is, no syncretism. Don't mix your religion with other religions. And we see it in, in, in denominations t- today. Uh, some of the denominations that are doing the craziest things, I think it was the Presbyterian mainline church that 
decided to worship Sophia at one of their general assemblies. Sophia, the god of wisdom. Who knows who she is? Uh, but just this outrageous syncretism in the church. And Moses says, uh, when you have a theocracy, put those people to death. When you don't have a theocracy, you just need to discipline them in the church according to the means given you. And then in verses 2 through 7, we learn that we should discipline your church's worship. So he says, if there is found among you anybody, male or female, it doesn't matter. Neither chauvinism or chivalry is going to, to keep us from exercising justice in both genders across the board. And notice that uh, the charges are public knowledge. There's no secret uh, process here that provides for kangaroo courts or anything of the sort. But he says several things to them about dealing with justice in the church. First of all, make diligent inquiry. Ask questions. Be sure that what you heard is correct. Don't fly off the handle. Don't take one witness or even two witnesses' word for it until you hear the response of the accused. Be careful. Remember, exercise judgment, especially in the church. And most churches, frankly, don't have a system of government where they can deal with major sins in their church. If you happen to be blessed uh, with a church that can do that, be sure that in that process you always leave people innocent until proven guilty. You must make diligent inquiry. And then notice there must be multiple witnesses. You can't just, if it's just one person against one person, their testimony, you assume the innocence until proven guilty by two or more witnesses. Same principles apply in the church that should apply in the state. And then there should be appropriate sanctions. You see here it's capital offense. In, in a theocracy, that is a capital offense to exercise treason against the sovereign. And God's the sovereign. You want to replace him with another sovereign, another God? <laughs> capital offense. In a theocracy, it ain't necessarily so. Uh, because we're not living in a theocracy where God is the uh, king of one particular nation. And then, of course, there must be church support. Uh, and you see that in the verse 7 where we're told the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him. In other words, if someone's going to be punished, let the one who testified against him throw the first stone. And Jesus was saying that, wasn't he, to the woman caught in adultery. Let the, let the one who caught her cast the first stone. He was just quoting Deuteronomy 17.7. And, of course, nobody would cast the stone. Why? Well, I guess if you were a witness of adultery, you must have been the one who did it. I uh, caught you again, didn't I? Uh-huh. So, but what Moses is saying to the people is that you can't just hand this over to the executioner. This is not just for the professionals. Once again, he's saying to the people, everybody's got to be engaged in the process of justice in the community and justice in the church. And everybody has to take their place. Everybody has to support their leaders and not just shuffle it off to them. Now, thirdly, in verses 8 through 13, we'll see that our people must obey with submission. And here, once again, we're dealing with priests and judges who are making judgments. And you'll notice through this text, the main thrust of it is you've got to do what they say. You can't have courts who are giving, rendering judgments and the people don't obey them. Now, if you, if you take the uh, history of civil rights in the last century, we had courts who were giving judgments, and people were not obeying them. So what do you do? You send the National Guard. 
you do. You send the army. You send whoever you have to send. If you're the one in charge of administering justice, you use the arm of the state to implement the judgments of the courts. You have to do that. That's right there. Do what they say. And you should expect that a secular state should, not only can, they should use the power of the state, administration, executive powers, to implement the judgments of the courts. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes you'll have uh, chief administrators or uh, presidents or governors who will not implement the judgments of a court system that has judged rightly. And here you have it. So let's notice several things in this text. Um, He says, first of all, ask for help. If you need a judgment, ask for help. And you shall come and you shall consult them. And this is exactly what Jethro told Moses. Ask for help. Get, you know, delegate your cases to the lower courts. And when you have a difficult case, it comes to the highest court, Moses. And that would be you, Jethro told him in Exodus. Same thing here. There will be a court, he says, in Jerusalem. He's telling them before they get there. You'll set up a high court in Jerusalem. Of course, in Jesus' day, it was called Sanhedrin, the high court. Now, look what happens when a court gets corrupted. Look at the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day, the Supreme Court, and how it was corrupted. And they brought, they went out and got false charges brought into court so they could hear them. Totally false charges. See what happens when corruption uh, attacks our judicial system. But first of all, ask for help. Use the courts. Secondly, do it. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you. Thirdly, do it all. You should be careful to do according to all that they direct you. Fourthly, do it all constantly. You shall not turn aside from the verdict. And fifthly, get everybody else to do it constantly. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying, that man shall die and all the people shall hear and fear. Now, gentlemen, there are exceptions, aren't there? There are times when you should disobey the courts. Uh, The people of Israel in Jesus' day should have disobeyed the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin were acting unjustly. And the American Revolution is in some ways built upon a book that a Puritan, Samuel Rutherford, wrote entitled Lex Rex. The law is king. And what Samuel Rutherford was saying is the king is not ultimately the king. The law of God is the king. And when the king disobeys the law of God, the king loses his validity. That was a very important argument in English judicial history that was used by our forefathers and foremothers in justifying the revolution. And notice once again as an aside here about the revolution. What was the Declaration of Independence? That was our statement of doctrine. That's what I was saying a moment ago. That when you take action, it's not just taking the action, it's explaining the action that's so important. And thank God that he gave those men wisdom to write a document that we can disagree with the document, we can disagree with their principles, but at least we know how they were thinking. And they left a legacy for what is a legitimate revolution. And, of course, Jefferson said you need a revolution every once in a while just to clear things out. And I'm not sure I agree with that, but probably he's a far smarter person than I am. He's probably correct when you look at the history of nations. But what are the principles by which you have a good revolution? The Declaration of Independence meant to show us how to do that. So basically they were saying, hey, look, if this happens again, you children of ours, you do the same thing. Do what we did. Here's how we did it. Now, you don't have to agree with them, but that's what they were doing. 
And once again, you find it here, you must be in submission. So that if you're going to violate a judgment of the court, you need to write a letter. You need to explain yourself. That's what Christians do. They stand on principle. And so that when uh, Dr. King was violating the orders of magistrates, you find a corpus of material he writes. Why? It's important. Dr. King was committed to a biblical perspective. And therefore, he wanted everybody to know not only what he was doing, but why he was doing it. He constantly appealed to biblical principles. It's a wonderful thing to see that ministry in his life and through his death. Now, fourthly, our leaders must lead with devotion. And here we get the rules of kings. And we'll have to race through this. First of all, a king must be one of the people. Now, he must be a man of God's own choosing. We see that in verse 15. But also, he must be one from among your brothers. And it's important that our leaders come up from among us. And it's important when we're trying to help other nations that we develop leaders that are coming up from among them. You can't have sustained leadership with aliens. You have to have sustained leadership from indigenous people. It's true in every case. If you're planting a church, if you're establishing a business, if you're doing a good work in a neighborhood, you want the leadership and the ownership of that ministry to come out of that neighborhood. You don't want it to be owned by an alien neighborhood in the long run. Same thing. One of the people. Secondly, he must have a heart of a servant. Look at this. Not many horses, not many wives, not much money. Well, that means most politicians then wouldn't want to run. No horses, no wives, no money. And that was the way it was with the Near Eastern kings. They were into weapons, women, and wealth. And Moses was saying, that's not going to be your king. Your king is going to be in the service. So watch out for these things. They just corrupt. And in your form of leadership, gentlemen, whatever form of leadership it is, even if you're in a profit-making enterprise, what's your ultimate goal? Is it to suck as much out of that business as you can for your own estate? Or is there a sense of responsibility for helping all of your employees, for rewarding properly your stockholders, for taking care of those who loaned you money, to provide for those in the neighborhood where your businesses are, and to contribute to the overall welfare of this entire MSA? Isn't that more the Christian mentality instead of wives, weapons, and, and, and wealth? This is what God is saying about leadership. And then notice thirdly, verses 18 through 20, he must be a man of the book. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And the word a copy of this law is the phrase from which we get Deuteronomy, actually. Well, what do you do with the book? Well, first of all, you have it. It shall be with him. Secondly, you read it. You don't just own a Bible. You read the thing. And thirdly, you don't just read it. You do it. You keep it. That he may learn to hear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. That is the commandment for the king. He's to be just like one of us. He's not a god. He's not a demigod like the Near Eastern nations taught about their kings, like Egypt taught about their Pharaoh. No, he's one of us. He's just one of the brothers. And he's to obey the law just like all the rest of us. Lex Rex. Now, lastly, if you look here, you'll see that our, law, our leaders, uh, well, let's, let's look at public policy, and i get about two minutes to talk about this. 
Sometimes in the Christian community, we think that we can take something right out of the Old Testament and put it right into contemporary law. And obviously, I think most of us know you can't do that. It's more complex than that. And I've just tried to list some things here with the help of some other people I've read through the years about what makes good public policy according to people who are involved in these things. And you see, number one, it is consistent with God's Word. That's the number one thing. But look, it's also consistent with historical experiences, how, what kind of laws have we observed in the past and how they worked, with social sciences and economic theory, we take that into account, with whether it has adequate popular support, you can have laws that are theoretically good, but they don't work and they create rebellion among the people, so that's not wise. It's enforceable. In other words, there are metrics or standards that can be applied where we can actually police what's going on, where it's affordable, we can actually afford to do it, and it doesn't tank us economically, and it has a good effect upon the poor who usually don't have the power uh, in, in community. That's what makes good public policy. So when you're thinking about public policy, it's usually not binary. It's either all good or all evil. It's a more sophisticated issue. And then uh, put some suggestions there just for how to vote for good people in office, which, of course, is the uh, answer to many of our woes. Gentlemen, here's the bottom line. Leadership is important. Your leadership is important. And your leadership being based on the Word of God is important. And you can see that God would not let these people go in and take possession of the Holy Lamb without clear instructions for them about how they were to live life together in the political realm as well as the church realm and what their leaders were to do to sustain it. And you're God's people and messengers. Today, you're going out the door to serve Him with justice and righteousness and with grace and mercy. And I suggest you have a really good day doing it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the word that You give us about life in the political realm, the governmental realm. And Lord, we ask that You would continue to raise up men out of this very room who will serve in elected office and who will serve in governmental offices. We pray for all of us that we would participate as citizens as we ought. That we'll be careful to train ourselves and those who come behind us. And that in every area where we exercise leadership, that we may be men of discernment and judgment, of fairness and equity, men of principle in everything that we do.